We are moving right along in our study of Matthew and um, excited about what comes next. And that's generally the case. I'm always excited about what comes next and I'm excited about where we've been and the background that we're gaining as a body. We move into uh, a unique section of our scriptures this morning in verse 19 of chapter 6 as we'll begin the discussion of our finances or kingdom stewardship um, beginning in verse 19. Verses in Scripture that deal with money are pretty familiar to you. You've heard them. Maybe you've heard them used or abused uh, at different times in your life. Let me remind you of a couple of key passages that should be uh, very familiar to us. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 say, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to stop or desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Ecclesiastes 2.11, Solomon here, looking at life as a whole, spends all of chapter 2 talking about his pursuit of pleasure and possessions. And in verse 11 he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's an amazing word picture that Solomon uses, striving after the wind. If you want to make a fool of yourself this afternoon with your family and friends, you might let everyone know that you're going to go chase down the wind and you're going to bring it back. That's a very powerful word picture of wandering aimlessly, trying to grab something that is ungrabbable. Psalm chapter, or the 49th Psalm, rather, in verses 16 and 17 says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, or don't be alarmed. Maybe afraid is a little bit of a difficult translation. Don't be alarmed when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. These are familiar to us because the reality of what we're going to study this morning is familiar to us, at least at the surface level in our Christian culture. John D. Rockefeller, the first ever billionaire in the United States, was asked in his youth how much money would make him happy. And he replied quickly, just a little bit more. At the end of his life, there is a quote that comes from his funeral in 1937. And someone asked another person in the crowd, how much did he leave behind? And that's a common phrase, to, what was he worth? But they said, what, how much did he leave behind? And the person replied, all of it. He did, in fact, the first United States billionaire, the one who had gained so much wealth through oil and gasoline, uh, which is ironic. He was the first to make all of the money, yet when he passed away, he left all of it behind. He took none of it with him. Interesting reading this week and last week about this issue of stewardship and thinking about Pharaoh's. Uh, in the Egyptian empires, they were the opposite. They believed in an afterlife, but they believed in an afterlife where actual possessions would go with you. And so in the uncovering of the tombs and the pyramids, they have found these pharaohs in a gold tomb inside of a gold tomb inside of a gold tomb with thousands and thousands of pounds of gold, possessions, chariots, and yet when they find these remains, all of those possessions and all those tons of gold are still right where they left them. 
Because the reality is from Scripture, and the reality that we'll see this morning from our Lord's mouth in Matthew chapter 6, is that we do not carry our wealth on with us in death. We can take none of it with us. And so that brings us to a question, it brings us to a point of concern. What is the place of wealth? What is the place of treasure? And how may I best use it as a follower of Christ? In the context of what we're studying here in Matthew chapter 6, we're moving from the first portion of Matthew 6, dealing with Jesus' teaching about the warning or the danger of hypocrisy in religious activity, right? We've been studying this for weeks now, and and what a blessing it has been to examine our hearts, to lay ourselves before the Lord, and allow Him to expose areas of hypocrisy within our worship. He used those three illustrations of giving to those who are in need, of prayer, and then of fasting last Lord's Day as those potential dangers, those danger zones for hypocrisy in religious activity. We move now into the second portion of chapter 6, and it's a totally different issue at hand. We've moved from hypocrisy in religious activity to materialism or worldliness in non-religious activity. And for the believer, that's a little bit of a misnomer. There is no non-religious part of our lives, and yet Jesus is dealing with the mundanes of day-to-day existence. So we're going to look today at the accumulation of wealth. We're going to look in the weeks ahead at the representation of who we are as men. We're going to look at the two masters' idea of serving God and money and the impossibility of that being in our lives. We're going to look at the anxiousness of verses 25 through 34, concerned about the body, worried about the external, versus the kingdom reality of confidence and trust in one that we cannot see, making provision for all that we need. And so Jesus, here on the side of the mountain, sitting on the plateau with those multitudes around him, is going to expose repeatedly the danger that comes living as followers of Christ, living as kingdom citizens in a world that thinks differently, that moves differently, that lives in a, in a totally different worldview or perspective than we do. There's a danger. And the danger is we slip into conformity to the world around us rather than transformation into the character of our Christ. And that's what we're going to address this morning as we deal with this transition passage beginning in verse 19. Radical and singular devotion to the kingdom is the grand theme of these verses. Radical and singular devotion on the part of the kingdom citizen towards the kingdom of Christ is the grand theme. It is the overarching heading. It's the banner that we can put over these passages. God demands everything. The cross demands everything. Your king, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, demands it all. There is no exempt part of your lives. There is no exempt part of your thinking of your belief system, of your worldview, of your perspective on life that must not come into conformity to the very mind of God and to the outline that he's given us for our lives, for our thinking, for our worship, for every component of our existence. So, verse 19, 20, and 21 are going to be the spot where we'll land this morning. 
And I trust we're going to make our way through this. I trust with great confidence that God will provide the grace needed to get through these three verses this morning. Here's our proposition. We're going to contrast the value system of the world with that of the kingdom as it regards to financial riches. And that is exactly what we're talking about in these three verses. Let's read these together. Verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What a pointed statement from our Lord. We're going to look at this in two different facets. First of all, we're going to see the test of our treasure. And then secondly, we're going to see the test of our heart. And of course, the kingdom message here in the Sermon on the Mount revolves around the heart. This is the focus that Jesus has. He is addressing the internal which results in an external change. No different here. Your use of financial wealth, your use or accumulation of financial and earthly wealth, that is present day possessions and money, is directly connected to your heart. There is no way you can separate the two. Your use of your finances flows directly from what you think, and what you think flows directly from what you believe. We've said this before. This is a little phrase that we've used through the years. I was taught this in high school. We say what we say, and we do what we do, because we think what we think. And we think what we think, because we believe what we believe about God, about His Word, and about ourselves. We say what we say, and we do what we do. Because we think what we think. And we think what we think because we believe what we believe about God, about His Word, and about ourselves. Our heart translates into action. There is no neutrality for us as believers. There's no middle ground where we're not really serving ourselves and we're not really serving Christ. Our heart will translate into activity even in this issue of treasure on earth. So let's notice then the test of treasure. We have these two treasures that are compared or contrasted against one another here in verses 19 and 20. And this, folks, this is so familiar, right? I I know that you know these passages, and this is not going to be something revolutionary and new this morning, but I trust it will be a a healthy re-look at what you already understand. You have a couple of imperative verbs, depending on your translation in verse 19. The first word, do not lay up. And then in verse 20, but lay up or do lay up, you have two imperatives. Those are commands in your Bible. So let's just be clear at the outset here. There is no doubt about it. Jesus is being emphatic about our wealth here on this earth. He has a very clear direction he desires his followers to go after. There are clear guidelines for the kingdom citizen found in verse 19 and verse 20. So this is not a gray area. This is not an interpretive flip-the-coin issue. Well, maybe that's what you think, but that's not what I think. No, this is crystal clear commands. Do not do something and do something. 
That's your contrast. Not only that, but here in the very outset, he says, do not lay up for yourselves. And then in verse 20, he says, but lay up for yourselves, which is interesting, is it not? Both of these activities do come back to the benefit of the one who partakes of these activities. On the one hand, there's a forbidden action for myself or for yourself. And on the other, there's a commanded activity that will, in fact, benefit you personally. It shouldn't come as a surprise. We've spent the first part of chapter 6 seeing that our Father, who is in secret, will reward you. There is definitely a component of our Christian lives that recognizes and anticipates the personal blessing that is ours as we follow Christ and as we follow the Word of God. This is the key component or the key description of the kingdom citizen. They are the blessed ones. Remember from Matthew chapter 5, how many months ago? They are the blessed ones. They are the ones who are broken but blessed. They are humbled but blessed. They are mourning but blessed. They know happiness to the root. The issue at hand is the accumulation of wealth on the one hand for the sake of personal happiness and pleasure. And on the other hand, it is a benefit to ourselves or to our own lives, but it comes from our devotion to giving to God and for God what is rightly His. Now, just before we jump into these verses in any kind of detail, let me lay out a couple of warnings that hopefully will guard us from unhealthy extremes. Okay, There are some key things that, that we're not hearing from our Lord this morning. He is not... He is not forbidding earthly wealth itself. He's not. He is not forbidding the presence of earthly possessions. He's not forbidding future planning for your family to establish a plan for the sake of taking care of those that you love. And Jesus is not forbidding your own pleasure from the possessions that he's blessed you with. Let's take a look at just some other passages. Let me talk to you about a little pet peeve while we're turning to Proverbs chapter 6. That's not a pet peeve. That's the wrong term. One of the things that is unique as a pastor, and particularly as one who's only in his 20s, is that on a consistent basis, people will remind me of the other passage. Uh, It's the other passage that speaks to this issue in another way. And I just... I always want to say, I know about that other passage, but we were studying this passage. Well, this morning we're going to look at the other passages, okay? Here are some of the other passages that have to guard our interpretation of our passage this morning. Proverbs chapter 6, here is God's uh, commentary on diligence for the sake of accumulating for the future. Go to the ant, oh you sluggard. God does not enjoy those who do not work. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, God here puts on display this little ant colony and says, Hey, you lazy person, hey, you sluggard who refuses to work, why don't you take a look at the ants? They actually go and stockpile so that when they have no food, they have a back stock that they can pull from and they can glean from. Ants are good stewards of what the Lord has entrusted to their little existence. This is not a passage that forbids 
setting a course that takes into mind the future. In 1 Timothy, we have a lot of passages in 1 Timothy that help us get a proper understanding of what we see here. 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us, beginning in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now notice verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. God, in fact, intends, he fully intends, and he desires for you to enjoy with gratitude the blessings that you have in your existence here on this earth. Those are the appropriate responses, joy and gratitude for what God has blessed you with. Chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You want to take Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and just stop working? Stop providing for your family. Stop the natural flow of what God has ordained for provision. You are living a life that is worse than an unbeliever. An infidel is the old King James word. A word that we want to avoid in this day and age. Worse than an infidel. An unbeliever. God takes seriously the provision for your family's needs. Particularly leaders of your households, you men. 1 Timothy chapter 6 continues on. Paul had this on his heart with Timothy. He tells us in the most familiar verse on money in Scripture, though misquoted, verse 10 of chapter 6, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is the root of all evil. And it's through this craving this craving that some have wandered away. There is indeed a danger in the love, the affection of wealth. These are the other passages. Verse 17 and verse 18 and 19 give us one last look in 1 Timothy. Verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, that is those within the body of Christ, there in Ephesus that Timothy is ministering to, who are wealthy, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The issue here is where their hope and their confidence lies, not in their riches, but in the God who has blessed them with those riches. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And in fact, when we get here in verse 19, this same idea comes up, storing up treasure for themselves. It is the rich in this present age who give themselves to generosity, to a life devoted in hope and confidence in God, to using their wealth and their finances for the furtherance of his kingdom, using it wisely for his purposes, who store up treasure for themselves for the future. 
This is not the future as in tomorrow. This is the future as in 30 trillion years from now future. Why would we trade in the next 20 years when we have the opportunity to take God's word as it's stated, apply it to our lives by his grace, and live with an eye towards the next 20 million years in eternity? That's the issue at stake in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. It's a test of treasures. There's a strong radical message. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Here's our first description. The consuming passion of the kingdom citizen cannot be earthly possessions or treasures. Different cultures have different treasures. Different families have different treasures. Different individuals within those different families have unique treasures that are merely earthly. As soon as they're here, they're gone. And when you are gone, they're still here, rotting in some shoebox in somebody's attic until they die. And eventually, somewhere down the line, somebody goes, what is this stuff, and throws it away. Treasures on earth. I read one commentary from Lloyd-Jones, the expositor of the last century, really the expositor of expositors, who commented specifically to pastors, the treasures of the earth for the shepherd can be the praise and acclaim of men. When he dies, it stays here. And to live for it is to miss an eternal perspective that will result in an eternal reward. Earthly wealth is described for us in verse 19, where moth and rust destroy. That's really a a hard word. Rust might have a little note for you there. And you'll look down and you'll see the word worm. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first started to study my Bible with any level of concern for details, when I would see a note where there was a word rust and then the second word was worm, I'm going, I mean, that's pretty broad, is it not? I mean, how, how specific can we be in our translation? Rust or worm? That was the decision on the table. Eh, we'll go with rust. Rust was used in the King James Version and the earliest English versions. It was used as a better word picture because metals had already taken over for wood. The idea here is corrosion, total, complete corruption of whatever it is. And in the time in which it's written, and in the time in which Jesus is speaking about it, he's talking specifically to the rotting out of wooden structure. Mice, worms, termites, little devils, result of the fall. Those kind of corrupting influences. Rust is a modern day equivalent of that. If you leave that car sitting out in that carport for the right amount of years, there won't be anything left to that vehicle. One of the blessings of my life, and at the same time, a mild trial in my life, was inheriting my grandfather's Mercedes 190E. Love that car. I uh, took it to my uh, senior events and all of that. I loved it. And when he passed away, I was the oldest grandson, so I called dibs. And then I had to wrestle my younger... No, I'm just kidding. I didn't have to wrestle my cousins. But I called dibs, and they were going to college, so I took the car. And we got that car, and I was so excited to have it. And for the first several months, everything was going just well. And I had to take it into the shop to get it serviced. And when they put it up, and they tried to put the jacks into the Mercedes 190E, if you've ever seen the Mercedes, it has 
a tube that sticks out of the frame that you can stick a jack into and just put it right up. Well, there was a problem. That little tube was missing. It wasn't there. And uh, the guy, the guy kind of scratched his head and he said, you know, there's, there's probably more to this story. In fact, this was in San Fernando uh, back in L.A. And I said, well, I'm sure there is. And he got down underneath and he told me, the reason the tube is missing is because there's a whole lot more missing underneath of this car. In fact, you have more rust than you have metal. And we've got to be careful jacking this thing up because the whole frame will just fall apart. So we decided to take the minimal measures, and now my mom has the car. And uh, she's driving the rust-laden Mercedes 190E. Rust, corruption, it eroded the very structure of the vehicle. That is the term used here to describe these treasures on earth. Moths would come in and eat clothes. This is before mothballs. I mean, another result of the fall, mothballs. Oh, my goodness, mothballs. That was a direct relation to this reality. If you want to preserve it a little longer, put these terrible smelling things in it, and then the moths won't eat it as fast. Moth and rust and thieves, and the word for thieves is unique here. They break in and steal. It's not a breaking and entering culture. They did not bust out padlocks. They did not break through deadbolts. In this time period, when Jesus is in on the mountain, the thief would actually dig through the dirt wall of your house and crawl into your home. That spooks me out. I don't know about you, but they would cut their way into your house, crawl in underneath of your wall and come into your home. That's the idea that's here. If it doesn't get eaten by moths, if it doesn't get eroded by some other force, if it doesn't get stolen by thieves, your best bet is that you're going to die and leave it here to do that later. And Jesus says, kingdom citizen, why in the world would you give your passion, your energy, your focus, your heart to that? Why? Don't do it, Jesus says. And he gives this contrast. Not only don't do that, but then he lays on us, verse 20, the reality of what it is that we are actually about. We are not about earthly wealth or earthly treasures. We are consumed with heavenly treasures, eternal treasures. And let it be known that there are no moths in heaven, right here in verse 20. No moths in heaven. The new heaven and the new earth will include many things, but moths that eat clothes will not be one of them. There will be no mothballs in heaven. This is news, I know, but verse 20 tells you, earthly treasures corrupt and erode and fall apart and are taken Heavenly treasures will never corrupt. They will never erode. They'll never be taken. There are no thieves in heaven. That would be a a real theological problem if there were thieves in heaven. Okay? We would have to rethink our entire Bible. This is the consuming focus and passion of the one described here. So understand something. When we take the other passages that we looked at, And we put all of that together, and those are just a smattering of what the scriptures have to say about resources and finances. When we take all of that and we bring it back to Matthew chapter 6, what we find out is that Jesus is calling on his followers to give their devotion exclusively and radically to him. Even when it comes to what quote-unquote is theirs. Jesus demands 
commands of you that your stuff be used for his kingdom because you are his follower. You're not here permanently. This is not the end of the road for you. You have an eternity to which you look forward and therefore you ought to live in light of storing up an eternal treasure in heaven. The underlying assumption here is that the kingdom citizen is consumed with the gracious work of the king and sets his priorities under the direction of the kingdom in which he now lives and will live for a glorious eternity. We don't operate on the same wavelength with the world. Folks, for so long we've talked about being worldly, at least in my Christian upbringing. We talked about being worldly, and worldly was always related to what you looked like. And there's a key component there. There's an aspect in which that's true. Worldliness was always related to where you went. More importantly, where you didn't go. We don't go there. We used old terms from like past centuries to describe buildings because that meant more in the worldly sense. We don't go to the movie house. I mean, movie house? Like, has anybody called it a movie house for like, what, 100 years? We don't go to the gambling hall. There aren't gambling halls anymore. Those are gone. We don't do those things. Those are worldly. We're not worldly. It was, this is the activities that are worldly, and here are the activities that are not worldly. And what Jesus calls on us here is so much deeper because it addresses our hearts. He's not saying these activities are wrong and these activities are right. He's saying this focus is incorrect. It doesn't match. You can't set your priorities on the temporal, on the here and now, and claim to be a follower of the eternal king of the ages. Worldliness is a way of thinking. It is a perspective. It is a viewpoint in which you view your life. And you are worldly if you are living any component of your life in such a way for here and for now as if there is no eternity. So folks, there could be one individual who is saving finances, who is is stewarding his resources well for the future, all the while with an eye to eternity and using those resources for the glory of God. There could be another individual doing the exact same activity, and Jesus says one could be living righteously and in keeping with the kingdom standard, and one could be sinning because he is consumed with laying up his own treasure right here, right now. It's a heart issue. What a terrifying and convicting section this is. Every person who has ever lived leaves the exact same way they arrived, with nothing. Earlier this morning, I commended to you the book of the month, The Treasure Principle. And the treasure principle itself is, and there is actually a principle from this book, you cannot take it with you. Your wealth will not go with you, but you can send it on ahead. That is the treasure principle. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can use what you have been entrusted with here for the sake of laying up an eternal storehouse of treasure. You will be rewarded in heaven for what is accomplished by God's grace and his power on this earth. So why would you squander that? Why would you waste it for the here and now? The consuming passion of the believer must not be practically the same as the unbeliever. 
Ours is eternal and theirs is only temporal. Does this start to make sense? I mean, this, this is radical, folks. This, this deals with how we respond in our daily activities because we are living with an eye to eternity. We are living with an eye to heaven, not just earth. So let me ask you some practical application questions. How different is your life pursuit than that of the unbeliever in your social sphere? How different is your life pursuit than the unbeliever who is living right in your social sphere? I don't care if it's your workplace. I don't care if it's your club that you're a part of, your social gathering, your sports team, uh, your classmates, whatever the case. How different are your pursuits and your passions and your direction of life? How different is it than the one who is unbelieving who is all about those same social activities? What makes the Christian part of your description have any meaning? Some of you men are Christian businessmen. Some of you ladies are Christian businesswomen. You are Christian housewives. You are Christian moms. You are Christian wives. Some of you are Christian students on a secular campus. Some of you are Christian families What makes the Christian part mean anything? What's different? What sets you apart? Are you living in the kingdom dream of setting your life on a pattern that has heaven at its forefront? Or are you living your life with only the present stuck smack right in front of your face? What's your worldview? What's your viewpoint? What's your perspective? Because Jesus says the kingdom perspective must not be short-sighted. It must look to eternity as its end. This changes the way you respond in your workplace to controversy. This changes the way you respond to trials when you lose everything. This is different when you respond to anger and hostility on the part of others towards you. You are not here for now. You are not here for today. You are here because of eternity. And you are a trophy of grace for God's work throughout eternity. Therefore, you respond differently. should never shock you when the world responds as if this is all they have to live for. Well, of course they do, because it is. Folks, the reality is, after this, for the unbeliever, is hell. So why would you not be consumed with everything you can get your grubby little fingers on here? But we as believers... Why would we live as if that's our reality? When in fact our scriptures inform us and we are, we are crystal clear from our Bibles that we do not look forward to hell. We look forward to heaven and an eternal reward in the presence of Christ. I was reading this week and I, I'm telling you this was painful reading. It was just like a beat down. Every book I picked up after I'd done my preparation, I just get another smack across the face and think, man, I'd put that one down and think, surely this one's going to be nicer. And it would be another smack. One of the authors that I read this week dealing with this very issue confronted the reality that most of us do not long for heaven. We do not look forward to heaven because of how earthly our treasure is. We have put so much stock in what is here and what is now that we don't really want what is eternity to even come. How many of you, like me, have either thought or verbally said, I want the Lord to come back, but I hope he doesn't do it before this happens? I mean, 
Folks, do you realize how worldly that is? I really want to get my driver's license. Are you kidding? You don't want to go to heaven before you get your driver's license? Like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense, folks. We're not for the here and now. I really want Christ to come back. Yeah, heaven's going to be great. But man, I'd really like to pay off our mortgage. What? Are you serious? This is what you want? We are eternal. We have been saved for the glory of God through eternity, and he will reward us as we lay up treasure in heaven, using what he has given us now for the purposes of heaven, for his kingdom, for the furtherance of his gospel, and for the ultimate glory of his name. How different are we? How Christian are we? Are we living the kingdom dream, or are we living life in the American nightmare? Because the American nightmare ends in hell, if that's your full goal in life. While the kingdom dream may have less in this life, may not be acclaimed as successful as we may desire, and yet it will result in an eternal reward that will far exceed our imagination. It's a test of our treasures in verse 19 and verse 20. And boy, do we struggle, don't we? There are times when we see this clearly and we desire to see heavenly reward and heavenly treasure. And there are times when we slip back, we slip back, we slip back into worldly thinking. I'm right there with you, folks. We're living in a culture that inundates us with worldliness. Every commercial on your television tells you it's all about today. And you better get in your car right now and go to Macy's and buy this. Because it's going to end soon and you're not going to get it. That's worldly, folks. Right? I mean, every coupon you receive tells you, hurry up. You're not going to get the milk for $2.46. My wife would laugh because it's $4 or something, isn't it? You don't get milk for $2.46. Right? Hurry up. It's all going to end. We live for eternity. That is the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. That's the difference between the kingdom citizen, the follower of Christ, and the one who lives in the darkness and the lostness without him. That's the test of our treasures. Secondly, quickly, in verse 21, really just the pinpoint, the culmination of this passage, a test of your heart, and this is critical. This verse is the capstone to those two previous commands. Don't lay up treasure for earthly sake. But give yourself and your energy and your passion for heaven. Now we see why. Here's the explanation in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you needed any further clarification, here it is, folks. It's a heart issue. Jesus makes it so crystal clear. He closes that noose around us and he makes it obvious where we stand. Whatever is deemed most precious in our lives will be the object of our primary concern, our energy, our strategy, and every effort we can make. And so we can sit here this morning, and under the Holy Spirit's direction, we can expose our hearts and ask Him to show us, what is it that drives me? What's at the first place in my life? What is priority for me? Is it the reality of Christ? Is it the gospel that has consumed me, and the heavenly that I will exist in forever? Or is it something else? And we can see what the something is by looking at our lives. What we focus on will be the direction of our actions. It's kind of like when you're walking along with somebody, or maybe 
a better illustration is when you're riding bicycles. If you're ever riding bicycles down a, a bike path with a friend, and uh, you're riding down there, and they're ta- you're talking to each other, and you kind of just look ahead, right? And everything goes fine. You don't run into each other. There's no problem. You just go ahead, and you're talking, and you don't have to look. But if you feel the need to really connect, and you go ahead and look over at the person that you're riding with, you want to make eye contact. You really want them to know you care. Well, they're going to know you care in a minute more than you ever wanted, okay? Because your focus got averted from the path ahead of you, and you looked in the immediate right, and what happened with your bicycle? It goes over there. You can't fight it. If you try to fight it, you'll overcompensate. Maybe you've done this in the car, and you think, if I look over there and I hold my attention, I'm going to veer to the right. So I'm going to go ahead and give her a little on the left, and then I'm going to look to the right. And then you hear the boom, 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 because you're riding right down the side of the road. You can't keep your focus in a straight path on the right course unless you keep your vision centered on what is the goal. So it is with our hearts. Where our eyes of our hearts are focused, we will go. Where our affections are set, we will naturally move. Where your treasure is, you'll find your heart. Where's the gaze of your heart? John Calvin said, if honor is rated the highest good, then ambition will take complete charge of a man. If money, then forthwith, greed will take over the kingdom. That'll be the consuming passion. If pleasure then men will certainly degenerate into sheer self-indulgence. Whatever is set as the highest goal will ultimately consume the passion, the energy, and the drive of any individual. But those who live with Colossians 3, 1 and 2 at the forefront of their thinking, let our focus, let our attention be set above on Christ, will find that in result of their setting their attention on things above and not here below, they will discover the truth of Revelation 14, verse 13, which says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. You will be rewarded. We will find that there is a heavenly treasure. It's true. Our Lord Jesus has laid this reality before us. The kingdom demands everything and its rewards are eternally lasting and infinitely valuable. I can lay down application for you, but I don't think I need to. Where's your money, your time, your energy? What is it wrapped up in? What brings you the most joy? When you get stuck in traffic, what do you daydream about? When you're in class and your mind is wandering, what is it that you think of? What consumes your mind, your thinking, your passion, your desires? What is the center of your life? If it is earthly treasures, you are living in opposition, really in contrast to the very new creation that God has made you if you are a follower of Christ. If the pattern of your life is an earthly treasure hunt, and that is what you do, that is what you exist for, then there is reason for you to question in and of yourself, am I truly a follower of Christ? Because he demands everything of me. Find your treasure in life by examining your passions and priorities, and you will by default find your heart. The heart here is the center of the human existence. It is the center of the emotions, it is the center of the desires, and the will. It is the inner man. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that is either on earth or in heaven, there your heart will be also. Your money says a lot about your heart. My money says a lot about my heart. No matter how much or how little we have, it tells a truthful story. The highest pleasure that we can seek is the promised pleasure of the reward of Christ in eternity. But you know what makes that tough, folks? Here's where the rubber kind of meets the road for us. We can champion this. We can say, oh yeah, that's right. I want to be heavenly minded. I want to have a heavenly reward. That's what I want to center my life on. You know what makes that difficult? That's invisible. You can't see it. Therefore, you are left with one opportunity, and that is to believe what has not yet been seen, which is otherwise known as faith. This is a life of faith. It is the life of faith that began in your confidence that the Christ that you never met, that you've never seen, actually died on a cross to bear your sin. That the Father, who has never been seen, in fact, rewarded you with the righteousness of Christ and punished Him with His wrath for your sin at the cross. It is the same faith that must now be applied, which was first applied to the gospel, must be continually applied to our lives on a daily basis. You say, I struggle with this. I feel so so worldly. I'm so things-driven. I'm so possessions-driven. As soon as I get something, I can't wait to get the next one. As soon as I get into anything that's new, I think about the better one. I'm constantly battling with this this issue of greed and discontentment in my life. I am earthly in my treasures. A life of faith is the answer. It's faith in the promises of God, the same promises that we saw Jacob this morning in Genesis 32. He found confidence in God's promises and in his steadfastness. God has indeed promised that if you will set your attention on things above, he will reward you with an eternal reward. Turn in faith. Trust Him. Believe what His Word says to be true. And begin the process of laying up treasure for yourself in heaven. Now there's, there's a harsh reality here that's kind of lying right underneath the surface. Nobody, nobody can lay up heavenly treasure apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is no different than any other section in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot isolate it. You can't try to live it. This is not going to be on your late night television, how to get rich quick in 30 days or whatever it is, how to buy homes for 300 bucks, whatever those shows are. This is not going to be there because this cannot be accomplished. Oh, you might try to apply some of the principles, but you can never know the fullness of joy. You can never know the grace that is promised. Because that is promised exclusively to those who have been transformed with new birth. Because of their faith and confidence in the work of Christ as their substitute at the cross. Their faith and confidence in Christ as the resurrected Lord who provides life eternal for them. So if you're here this morning and you might resonate with, I I, I need to give myself more to uh, a proper perspective of my life. Well, this isn't about a proper perspective of your earthly life. This is about an eternal look at what is true. John 3 says, 
that without the new birth, no one will see the kingdom. That's the harsh reality. You need Christ if you are here this morning and you know no other treasure than an earthly treasure. All who come to Christ must renounce their own private agendas. They must give up their treasure trove and follow him and his kingdom exclusively. Those are the only terms of surrender. It's all for him. None for me. I give it all. I give everything of my life, even my finances, even my treasure. I give it up for the sake of his name. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 is a great closer for you who are believers this morning. Do not set your hope on your wealth. Set your hope on the God who has entrusted it to you and utilize it for the furtherance of his eternal purposes. Then and only then will we trace down the line of our treasure and find our hearts. And when we find our hearts in the proper place, we'll be brought back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3-10, through 10, and we'll see again that there's nothing in and of ourselves that merits his favor. We are at his mercy and we fall humbly again before the cross, desiring his grace anew every day.